When you're in your late teens and early 20s, it can be a time when the world seems like a big, exciting place. It's a time to travel and experience what life has to offer. You can make friends quickly and lose friends quickly. Life moves fast. Relationships can be intense and exciting. I was a kid. I'm very empathetic. When you throw somebody like me in a situation where I felt like I could be of help to somebody, I obviously want to help them. These are the words of Californian Emily Bamberger, spoken by an actor. In 2014, 18-year-old Emily was backpacking around Australia, staying at hostels. When Emily met a Swedish woman called Annika Decker at a hostel in Sydney, the relationship they formed was exciting and intense, but not in the ways that Emily could have ever imagined. She betrayed me and lied to me and made me do things I wouldn't normally do. From RTE Documentary and One, I'm Nicolene Greer. And I'm Sharon Davis. This is Finding Samantha. I don't need to be saved. I need to be found. Episode 4. Catch Me If You Can. When we left Samantha last, it was 2013. She was 25. By now, she had spent six years entangling herself with law enforcement because of her duplicitous actions. She had just returned to Sydney from her time as the GPO girl in Ireland. Samantha had been told by the courts that if she didn't address her issues, she would keep finding herself in trouble with the law. But she totally ignored this warning. And as 2013 turned into 2014, Samantha went deeper into a complex life of deception. Instead of pretending to be a child, she was going to start caring for children. And she would draw an individual, Emily Bamberger, into her world with devastating effect. At the start of 2014, in Sydney, Emily met a new friend, supposedly from Sweden, called Annika Decker. Emily later spoke to news.com.au for an article, and her words are spoken here by an actor. It's the strangest thing that's ever happened to me. She knew my family, my addresses. I was terrified. Annika told Emily's stories. She was from a very wealthy family. She'd been kidnapped as a child, and as a result was moved around the world by Interpol agents to protect her from threats. The best way I can describe it is I was wide-eyed, terrified, and really thought I was helping another human being be safe. Emily was sceptical about these stories until she got an email from Annika's minders, and it looked legit. The email address was at interpol.com. The email told Emily that her life and Annika's were in danger. They needed to leave Sydney. And so Emily and Annika went on the run to Brisbane. But first, Emily needed a new identity. Annika supplied the documents and they took them to the local licensing authority. I've never felt so scared. I got a new ID. My name was Amy Fisher. I was freaked out. I thought, this is real. It was the interpol.com email address that really got Emily on board with Samantha's stories. Cybersecurity expert Paul Seedwire has seen this play before. When you look at it, it might look like it's interpol.com, but it might be L-N-T-E-R-Paul.com. 
Um, but to the quick gaze of an eye, it looks like Interpol.com. And, and it's also, it's out of people's comfort zone. How many people deal with Interpol? So you see it, you go, yeah, okay, that must be real. You know, it's, it's, it's all a kind of authority thing that they use as well to convince people that this is real. She also gave Emily training on how to go undercover. How to lie, always sprinkle a bit of truth in it to be more believable. Looking for exits, blind spots, how to recognise potential threats. She would test me. We were on a bus one day, and when we got off, she asked me how many people were on the bus. I told her I didn't know, and she told me there were 28 people, 13 Caucasians. She said I needed to be more aware of my surroundings. Unlike Samantha's previous solo escapade in Dublin, this time she completely drew Emily into her world. She used the Interpol story to convince this young American woman to travel around Australia under a false identity. One night, she wakes me up complaining that her head hurts. I called her an ambulance. When the ambulance arrives, she tells doctors she's 14 and that I'm her sister. I didn't know what to say, so I went along with it. At the hospital, police arrived and started questioning me. They accused me of kidnapping her, and I spent hours answering questions. I spent two days in jail, and they charged me with fraud over the fake ID. I was fined a lot of money. As soon as Emily was let out of jail, Samantha found her. She escaped, and met me with her catheter still in her fucking arm. We boarded the plane back to Sydney the night she escaped. Much of what we see of Samantha is when she presents herself as vulnerable and powerless. But she has an ability to bring people into her world and persuade them to emotionally invest in her. She has that charisma of getting people to trust her straight away. And that's an art form and she's getting people to invest in her, invest their time, invest their heart, invest their, 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 their care in her. Um, And ultimately, she betrays all of that. She took me to a Sydney safe house. I can't believe how creepy that was, looking back on it. Nobody knew where I was. Emily was led to believe that her life was in enough danger that she needed to hide out somewhere safe. Emily reported that there was no Wi-Fi or opportunity to let her family know where she was. The safe house that Emily says she was held in for eight days or more was a converted shipping container at the back of a house in Samantha's hometown of Campbelltown, which is about 45 minutes outside central Sydney. In three kilometres, use the left lane to take the Norellan Road, B69 exit towards Campbelltown. I drove out there to have a good look around. Campbelltown is a mix of both suburban and semi-rural areas. This is the place where Samantha was born in 1988. She went to high school out here, and we know she's lived here at different times throughout her life, up until very recently. Details of her early life are sketchy. We do know that her parents separated when she was two years old. In reports prepared for one of her court appearances that we'll be hearing about later on, Samantha, voiced here by an actor, described her childhood. Mum and Dad looked after me okay. After they separated, I lived with Mum and would go to Dad's every second weekend. We moved around a lot with Mum and I went to school at Stanmore, Petersham, Padsdale North. Don't remember all of them as there were about 13 or so, I think. 
Given what we know about Samantha's relationship with the truth, it's hard to know if what she's saying is accurate. The reports supplied to the court describe her as an unreliable historian. I was okay at school. I had a learning disability when I was young and I found it hard to comprehend things or read properly. I think I slipped through the cracks pretty much at school as I don't remember any special classes or teaching for this. I played sports okay. I had no best subjects as I couldn't pick up anything. I have been told I was a fast developer and walked early, quicker than the boys in my family. Girls are always quicker than boys though, aren't they? We also know that Samantha went to school here, in the suburb of Airds. Sharon paid the school a visit. I'm outside Airds High School at the moment, where Samantha spent her final years at school. And the school looks good. It's right across the road, unfortunately, from the Reby Youth Detention Centre, which is a rather imposing building with very large fences with razor wire at the top of them. 17 years ago, when Samantha was here, this was a pretty tough area. It's a place that is undergoing a lot of change now. Kiriai, a local woman, has seen the transformation of the Aird's neighbourhood. I have to admit, compared to what it used to be, it's an absolutely beautiful area now. Tell me, what was it like six years ago? Best way to describe it, broken ice pipes on the side of the road, needles here, there, everywhere. Children running up and down the street, smashing windows, smashing cars. It's definitely become a lot more quieter and, and a lot more peaceful. Sharon has found people who knew Samantha in her youth. I've spoken to a lot of people who claimed they were acquaintances or friends in high school. She used to tell her friends that her real name was Lindsay Lohan, the actor. If Lindsay dyed her hair red, Samantha would dye her hair red as well. Um, And when she was away from school, she often told people that she'd been in Hollywood filming a movie. So she was a bit of a fabulist. She was also an attention seeker and often in trouble. One friend said that she manipulated others to get involved. Most of them say she was a good person at school, but troubled and trouble and needed help. In 2007, she moved to Queensland, where she came to the attention of police for the first time. While there are large gaps about what we know of Samantha growing up, her later years come with more focus. It was Emily who was the one who suffered the greatest consequences. She lost four months of her life in this totally made-up world. She was eventually caught by the Australian authorities and in the spring of 2014 was deported home to the US and can never return to Australia. In late spring of 2014, after being deported back to America, Emily Bamberger received an email from Samantha, who Emily still knew as Annika Decker. I logged onto the internet as soon as I landed, and she had already messaged me. She told me there was somebody in America trying to kill me. She told me I was in danger. She told me Interpol had put out an alert that California was going to have an attack. In fact, even as these strange events unfolded, Samantha was working on her next scam. Having been flown home from Ireland in 2013, you'd think that was the last place she'd return to. 
But that's exactly what Samantha did. And now there was a new and very disturbing element to her scam. She was about to take a job, probably her first, as an au pair. Annika Decker seamlessly became Indy O'Shea. This couple had two small kids, aged two and four, and they went online to find an au pair. Kieran Deneen was a journalist with the Irish Sun newspaper in May 2014. And amongst those they spoke to was this 18-year-old girl called Indy O'Shea, and they checked her out and they spoke with her and they really felt she ticked all the boxes that they needed for an au pair. Samantha's latest scam played out in County Leitrim, in the small town of Drummond. Fulcher, Drummond. Welcome to Drummond. I'm just going to have a little drive around just to see. Okay, so this is kind of the main street by the looks of things. A pub, credit union. Very quiet. Hair and beauty by the Shannon. The village laundry, all very quiet. A closed petrol station. And the sign saying Slawn, end of the village. It's not a big town and quite sleepy on the day I visit. It's by a lake, so some of the homes are holiday rentals. You would have to wonder why Samantha flew all the way from Australia and 140 kilometres from Dublin to be an au pair in a town where she knew nobody. She arrived at the house and she became part of the family. They really liked her and she seemed to really like them. It was only a short time, but she left a lasting impression on them. She gave hints that she had come from some money, that she may have been from royalty. Over time, the couple put it together that her mum was Princess Madeline, that she was raised by the princess's cousin and her biological dad. She got on brilliantly, and the family thought she was such a nice person. She told them what her favourite film was. Do you want to have a guess which film that would be? My name is Alan, Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out the window. My partner has him in custody. I don't downstairs. know what you're talking about. What, you think the FBI are the only ones on this guy? I mean, come on. Come on, he's dabbling in government checks here. I've been following a paper trail on this guy for months now. It's Catch Me If You Can, the one where Leonardo DiCaprio flies all over the world pretending to be someone he's not. They were roped into her life and her story more than they would have thought as an old pair coming to stay with them when she couldn't open a bank account because she didn't have a passport. She asked for a lift to the, the embassy so she could get a new passport. They wanted to help her out and the dad drove her down to Dublin to the Australian embassy. When he drove her down uh, to the embassy, she asked him to wait out in the car and he remembers her putting on these glasses but she never wore glasses and he later described it to me as like a Clark Kent disguise when she came out of the embassy she was kind of in a panic and effectively told him to get out of there as quick as possible and, and, to, and, to, and to get away from the embassy which, which he did she did explain that there was some issue she couldn't get the passport the way she needed to but that she would be able to get a passport via the British embassy that was their next step, going to the British Embassy. Again, she put on the glasses. The dad waited outside. She went into the embassy and she came back out. And this time she did have a, a passport. Um, a photograph belonged to another woman. She had the passport sorted. And it was explained that you know the family, her family, in the virtual commas, had organised it and all was OK. Well, it wasn't all OK. 
the dad had found in the wardrobe a large bundle of money and a boarding pass which showed her to be related to a Dutch royal family, I think it was. They also understood that she was wiring money to back to Russia for some reason. Wiring money to Russia? What was she involved in? No one has ever been able to find out how Samantha funds her global travels or whether her skills extend into financial fraud as well. Indy O'Shea left Drummond abruptly, saying that her mother had died suddenly in a car crash. She vanished from the family's life and it was only when they got a call from somebody in Australia that they realised who had been in their house. When they realised that Indy was in fact Samantha... The mother in the family burst out crying. She phoned Samantha and confronted her. Samantha admitted it, but promised her that the children hadn't been in any danger. That couple in Leitrim reported Samantha to the guardie. They'd found she was running multiple social media accounts. Perhaps Samantha left so suddenly because she had other plans. In the summer of 2014, 25-year-old Samantha Azapardi slipped away out of Ireland and made her way across the world to Calgary in Western Canada. This place is Calgary, Alberta. Anything is possible here. See, if you've got a dream and you're willing to do the work, Calgary has your back. The proof is in the people, the entrepreneurs that built this city, the innovators. Meanwhile, on Samantha's instruction, Emily Bamberger fled California in fear of her life. She also took a flight to Calgary, paid for by Samantha. But the faith that Emily had in Annika was about to fall apart. Earlier she told me she was Swedish, but in Calgary somebody tried to speak Swedish to her and she had no idea. I was like, fuck you, you're not Swedish. I knew then that she was nuts. Emily left Canada leaving Samantha on her own. We can't be sure what Samantha did in Calgary until October, when she walked into the Alexandra Health Centre. I'm Meg Wilcox, and I'm a freelance journalist in Calgary, Alberta. Meg has examined Samantha's time in Canada. If Leitrim in Ireland was an out-of-the-way place, the city of Calgary in Canada seemed like another odd choice. It was on September 16th of 2014 that a young girl walked into the Alexandra Community Health Center, which is in downtown Calgary. She was complaining about nausea and vomiting, that she'd had a head injury. She said her name was Aurora Hepburn. It was almost a year since the GPO girl had done a very similar thing in Dublin. She was taken to the children's hospital and she said that she'd been extremely neglected in her upbringing and that she'd been trafficked and she'd been the victim of sexual exploitation. Then Samantha introduced another character from her strange world. She mentioned an older sister named Daisy uh, and that the two had been living on the street for the past year and saying that she'd run away from a violent family history. She said she was Danish, that She and her mother had lived a nomadic life, they'd been traveling across Canada, uh, and that she'd never attended a formal doctor's office or received any education. And uh, she claimed to be illiterate, but also said that she knew multiple languages, including English, French, Danish, German, and even Icelandic. The police found one clue in a city 700 kilometers away from Calgary. 
a missing persons report that was filed with the authorities in Fort McMurray on September 8th, so about a week before Aurora stepped into the Alex in Calgary. This report was filed by a woman who said she was Daisy Hepburn. She alleged to be Aurora's older sister. Of course, Samantha was Daisy and she was Aurora. But at this stage, the Canadian authorities had no idea who she was. At sort of random intervals, she would talk about these horrific details of sexual and physical abuse and torture. After two weeks in hospital in Calgary, the authorities decided to take action. On October 1st, the girl still known as Aurora was admitted to a mental health unit for assessment. On October 2nd, the police were notified about a similar case in Dublin where a 14-year-old victim of human trafficking and sexual abuse was investigated just the year before. And they had their answer. Calgary Police Service have charged an Australian woman with mischief after claiming she was underage victim of sex trafficking and exploitation. At a press conference in Calgary, Sergeant Kelly Campbell outlined what had happened. The woman told investigators she'd endured years of violent sexual abuse and torture. For several weeks, investigators and healthcare workers spent countless hours working on the alleged victims uh, to establish the extent of her abuse and provide services for her recovery. But there was one difference between Aurora and the GPO girl. This time she talked. She was interviewed and was cooperative and uh, did confirm that her name was uh, Samantha as a party. Samantha also admitted she tried to create a false alibi. Samantha admitted that even Daisy was not a real person, that it was her who had made those phone calls to the authorities in Fort McMurray. She disclosed that the entire story that she had told was absolutely fake. It was happening all over again telling her stories, being cared for, being found out, being dealt with by authorities. Here is one of the quirks of Samantha's actions. Healthcare professionals and social care workers who have listened to her and tried to help her have often ended up feeling hurt and betrayed. We've spoken to many of them, but they're bound by confidentiality and cannot speak publicly. Is this guarantee of privacy being deliberately exploited Or is it just a happy coincidence for the publicity-shy Samantha? It was about 62 days that she was in custody before she did have her hearing. Again, in this case, the authorities really didn't know what to do with her. Several psychiatrists attended to Samantha, and in all cases, she was determined to be lucid, not exhibiting any mental health disorders, and that would have been over two weeks of observation and assessment. When we look to the effects or the costs of Samantha's time in Calgary, the Crown Attorney outlined the overall cost, not only of police services, but also health services, mental health services, overtime and social workers that stayed with Samantha over those first two weeks, calculated to about $150,000 Canadian. And so it was a large amount of public service money that uh, Samantha ended up uh, using in terms of these services. With Samantha's name back in the global media, this time as Aurora Hepburn, it wasn't too long before Emily Bamberger figured out what had happened when she was sucked into Samantha's world. I typed Aurora Hepburn into Google and story after story came up about this woman. I was blown away, embarrassed, scared. This event was my blind spot, my dreadful learning experience that will forever mold my future relationships with people. She betrayed me and lied to me and made me do things I wouldn't normally do. 
If I could say one thing, it's that you don't play with people's lives. It's not fair. I want someone to find her and get her help or keep her locked away so she can't hurt anybody anymore. I lived with a psychopath for four months. In December 2014, Canada deported Samantha Azapardi, returning her to Sydney, Australia. When Samantha arrived, the Australian authorities finally swung into action. During 2015, she was charged with fraudulently obtaining a passport in the name of Georgia McAuliffe, the same passport that she'd used to travel to Ireland en route to becoming the GPO girl. She was prosecuted on three passport-related charges. It's in this court case that we begin to learn about the early aspects of her life and about potential mental health issues. The court was told that Samantha had a very disadvantaged and vulnerable childhood. She was also described as severely disturbed, something we'll look at more closely in future episodes. The prosecution felt that her prospects for rehabilitation were uncertain. Samantha pleaded guilty, was convicted and placed on a good behaviour bond. The judge laid out the consequences for Samantha of breaking the bond and assuming more false identities, saying that if she did so, she'd be brought back to court and face being jailed for future offences. Why does Samantha do these things? As you've heard, we've tried many times to sit down and talk with her, but with no luck. Well, last year we noticed a page called Sam as a Party, with a photo that's nothing like the Samantha we know. This Samantha had brown hair, not blonde, like the con artist. Sharon contacted her last year, but there was no response. Then, seven months later, this message appeared and a strange conversation began. Hello, Sharon. Not only do you have questions, I also have questions myself. So if you can call me, message me, video call me, any of these would be much appreciated. For the next couple of weeks, I try to call the mobile number she's given me, but every time I try it... The person you are calling is not available. I looked her up on LinkedIn. She's there as a social care worker with the Government Health Department and a degree in social work. Sounds impressive. Then, unexpectedly, I receive a strange voice-generated audio message from her with a wailing baby in the background. Had a few questions to ask you. I was going to ask why all my childhood medical records have been thrown around and some of my encounters with law enforcement. By the way, everything in this message, including the baby sounds, is computer-generated. I now have all the material I need. Checked and verified. Sounds like your guest needs to do some simple fact-checking before throwing allegations around. I text a reply. Hi, Sam. Received your voice message. Was this message meant for me? This other account replies, telling Sharon that her police and hospital records have become entangled with those of the Samantha we've been following and that she has evidence that Samantha has been wrongfully arrested and accused. Part of me thinks that this must be Samantha as a party, the fraudster, trying to play with my head. And maybe it's working because it's niggling at me. Is this two separate people? Is there any possibility that records could have been confused? 
Or is she just creating doubt and confusion, like she does with so many people? She asks if I'd take a video call, and when I respond, she suggests we meet instead. I would prefer to meet up in person. At the same time, I don't want to be involved in this witch hunt. I don't regard this as a witch hunt. I've made every effort to offer Samantha the opportunity to tell her story. This is unexpected. If this is Samantha as a party playing a game where she is pretending there is another person called Sam as a party, how is a face-to-face meeting going to happen? But Sharon plays along and she agrees to meet up at the New South Wales State Library in Sydney. It's a public place with security on the door. By now I'm thinking I'm dealing with Samantha as a party, the real one. But I continue to respond to this other Samantha because a small part of me just isn't completely sure about what's going on. Next, to reinforce the idea that there are two Samantha as a parties who have been mixed up, Sharon is sent a transcript of a conversation, supposedly between the two of them. Here's a voice-up of that transcript. The Samantha who is supposedly going to meet Sharon starts. I'm going to meet with Sharon to have a chat. Is that okay? Is there anything I can or can't say? She said it will be off the record if I want. And then Samantha as a party, the one who actually exists, replies. What do you mean by off the record? My belief at the minute is she's only looking for negative things. I could be very wrong. Don't worry about my life. I'm nobody. I'm not entitled to rights. And that is fine because I'm very lucky and so appreciative of all that I have. Please don't waste Miss Davis's time. She's done what she can with the information she was given. It's so weird and another rabbit hole. Maybe she's trying to fool me, but why? All of the messages were then deleted five minutes later with a message saying they weren't meant for me at all. I must admit my head was spinning after this session with Samantha. She can have that effect on you. This is how she works. Reality quickly becomes blurred, to put it mildly. And she's clearly done her homework on me, touching on issues that she knows as a journalist I'd be interested in. What I'm left with after all of this is a plan to meet in two days' time. This makes me a little nervous. Who will be there? The real Samantha or someone else? Or anyone at all? I just don't know what to expect. In the next episode of Finding Samantha. How to look 15 years younger by Samantha as a party. The freckles she had on her face making her look like a little 13-year-old girl, they're actually drawn on by her. They were makeup. A judge delivers his verdict. This person has a psychological problem because of this penchant for this type of really bizarre behaviour. And Sharon gets a phone call offering her sensitive documents. I can't say how I got your name or your number, but uh, you're very hard to find. What I need to give you is quite important. I guess the question is, why me? Finding Samantha is written, recorded and produced by Sharon Davis in Australia and Tim Desmond and me, Nicolene Greer, in Ireland. Executive producer, Liam O'Brien. Soundtrack composed by Paddy Flynn. 
Sound engineer is Damien Chanel. If you have any information or tips on this story, email us documentaries at rte.ie. For further information on the series, visit rte.ie forward slash finding Samantha. Don't show or you've failed. Always okay, always fine, always on show. The show must go on, it will never stop. The show must not go on, but I know it will. I give up, I give up giving up, I am lost. I don't need to be saved.